You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, if all goes as planned, if all goes as planned, insert your own joke here, we should be done with chapter 1 just in time for Christmas and then we will have a a sort of a special Christmas message and we'll be starting chapter 2 at the end of the year or the first year depending on how that Sunday falls in there. So we're in John chapter 1, we're going to be looking today at verses 40 through 42. And after you found your place, we'll bow our heads in prayer and ask God's blessing upon our time of study. Our Father, we are so grateful to you for all that you have given to us, all that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for your word. It is a revelation of yourself to us. And we cannot begin to study and we cannot begin to read without asking your blessing and your work of illumination in our hearts and in our minds. You are in heaven and we are in earth, and we pray that you would establish your word to us as that which produces reverence for you. We pray that this would be for us the bread of life and that we may feast upon it this morning, that your word would have its rightful place here in this assembly and amongst us, and that you would help us as we speak and as we listen to your word. May we see our Savior in it in new and profound ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, let us read together verses 35 through 42. Again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that out that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. We're in the middle of studying the encounters that Jesus had with five of his twelve disciples. The five that are given to us here in John chapter 1 are Peter and Andrew, John, the author of this gospel, Philip, and Nathaniel, who is elsewhere in the gospels called Bartholomew. Only in the gospel of John is Nathaniel called Nathaniel. Other gospels call him Bartholomew. His full name was Nathaniel Bartholomew. And uh, one of the things that we have seen about the twelve disciples is that this is the most uh, motley, sort of common, ordinary group of people that you could possibly assemble together. The one thing that makes them stand out is that there's nothing about them that makes them stand out. They're ordinary people, and just if you had looked at them, they would look like a group of very ordinary men. Uh, Many of them fishermen. One of them, a political revolutionary, Simon the Zealot. Uh, One of them, a tax collector, a traitor to his own nation. And Jesus gathered these 12 men around him. And had it not been for the fact that Jesus stepped onto the scene... These twelve men and their names and what they did would be entirely lost to history. Had not Jesus stepped onto the scene and chose them and commissioned them to ministry and appointed them as disciples and then as apostles, we would know nothing of these twelve men. 
They were not theologians. They were not rabbis. They were not synagogue leaders. They were not brilliant men. They were not chosen for their giftedness. They were not chosen for their oratory ability. They were not chosen because they were brilliant or or thinkers or anything of that sort. They just were very ordinary, nothing unique about them, common men in every way. And yet Jesus called these 12 men to himself. And because of that, and because of how the Lord used them, we know them, of course, as apostles and disciples. And we know that the entire Christian church is built upon them. We know them as apostles, as the foundation of the church, as those to whom New Testament revelation was given, those who wrote the New Testament for us. But before they were ever apostles, they were disciples. Before they were ever full-time disciples, they were sort of part-time followers for the first part of Jesus' ministry. And before they were ever part-time followers, they were unconverted Jews who were waiting for the hope and the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah, unaware that He was walking amongst their midst until one day, two of them, John and Andrew, heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what we read in John chapter 1, and this is important to remember, is that we are not reading about their call to ministry. This is not their call to discipleship. This is not their call to apostleship. For Peter and James and John and Andrew, that happens in Luke 5 and Luke 6, some 18 months after the events recorded in John chapter 1. This is their call to salvation, to conversion. This is where they come to understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and they come to Him because they believe Him to be the Messiah. They are not yet committed disciples. Jesus has not yet called them to leave their nets and their fishing business and follow Him full time. They are still part-time followers who now have come to understand who Jesus is, and they listen to Him as He teaches them and as He travels around, as they have opportunity, but they're still fishermen. They're still maintaining their families and their businesses and their jobs and their occupation until Jesus calls them later on to full-time discipleship. So in John chapter 1, there are five of them that Jesus encounters. And whenever I, when, the first time I read through this, I started asking myself, now why these five? That's a good question, isn't it? Why not the other seven? Why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't John tell us how he met Judas or how he met uh, Matthew? Why does he choose these five? Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and John. Why does John choose those five instead of any others? That's a good question. I think that there are theological reasons why John chose these five. It's not because John simply needed to fill space. It's not because he rolled some dice or picked five names out of a hat. There's a very specific reason why the encounters these five are given to us and not the other ones. And it all serves to build John's case, which he's trying to build in his gospel. I think one of the reasons that John chooses these five instead of the others to give us uh, to, to give us an insight into these encounters, one of the reasons is because John is trying to show us, I think, how he himself came to the conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now remember, the whole gospel is written so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. At the end of the gospel, John says, that's why I wrote these things. So that you might come to this settled conviction, and that having believed in this, you would have, you would have life. Well, before John tries to convince us that this is the case, he's going to show us how he became convinced that this was the case. How did John become convinced that Jesus was the Christ? Well, he had gone out to hear John the Baptist preach, and John the Baptist was out uh, baptizing people, baptism of repentance, and then he was there when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John, the apostle, left John the Baptist to follow Jesus, 
and he asked Jesus where he was staying, and they spent the whole day with him, and John left convinced that he was the Christ, the Son of God. John left believing and having life in his name. But then there's a second reason why John gives us these five. And I think it is because of the reactions that all five of these men have to Jesus. All five of these men, when they spend time with Jesus, when they first encounter Jesus, Jesus demonstrated to them that he was who he claimed to be. And then you can read in the text how these men reacted. Look at verse 41. Andrew finds Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, which translated means Christ. Look at verse 43. Look at the reaction. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses wrote and the prophets in the Old Testament. That is, the Christ. And then down in verse 49, you get Nathanael's response. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That is the Christ. All five of these men have the same reaction. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathanael all come to the conclusion He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one of whom the prophets and Moses wrote. You are the Christ. You are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. That's their settled conclusion after they encounter Jesus. So all five of these men have a similar reaction, confess a same thing upon encountering Jesus. And so John includes all of them to show to us, look, not only did John the Baptist say these things, but I'm willing to say these things. Nathaniel understood this. Philip understood this. Peter got this and Andrew got this. So we have five rapid-fire witnesses to the, authentic, uh, to the authenticity that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's why those things are shared with us. So now last week we looked at John and Andrew's first encounter with Jesus. Now today we're going to look at Peter's first encounter with Jesus. And it comes about when Andrew goes to fetch his brother and says to his brother, we found the Messiah. So let's pick it up in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew is one of these two unnamed disciples back in verse 37. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. Before he followed Jesus, he left the lesser, that is John the Baptist, to follow after Jesus. Andrew is kind of an interesting figure in Scripture. Andrew is always listed among the twelve disciples in the first of those three groups that I mentioned several weeks ago. Do you remember that? There were three groups of four disciples each. Andrew always is in the first group, that is Peter's group. And Andrew is always listed with Peter and James and John. And out of those first four disciples, Andrew is the least known of all four. You're probably very familiar with Peter. You know quite a bit about James and John and can think of episodes in the Gospels where James and John play a prominent role and Peter as well. Out of the first four, Andrew is the least known. Andrew didn't have the type of personality that Peter had or that James had and that John had. There are some key events in the New Testament where even though Andrew was among those top four disciples, what was considered to be the inner circle, there were certain things that Andrew was not allowed to see and to be at. For instance, the Mount of Transfiguration. That was Peter, James, and John, but Andrew wasn't present for that because Jesus took those three and left Andrew out for whatever reason and took them up on the mountain and was transfigured before them. Andrew wasn't present for Mark chapter 5, I think it is, when Jesus healed the synagogue official's daughter, raised her from the dead. It was Peter, James, and John that were allowed to see that and be there, but Andrew and the rest of the disciples weren't. But then there are times when Andrew appears with those other three as part of sort of an inner circle. When Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, insert your own joke there, 
Andrew was one of the only the four people that were there, and it was Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. They, he was one of the four. In Mark chapter 13, when Jesus is questioned privately by some of his disciples, it's Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. He's part of that inner circle. Andrew has a, appears three times in the Gospel of John, once here in chapter 1, once in chapter 6, and once in chapter 12. And this is interesting to me. All three of the times that Andrew appears in the Gospel of John, he is seen bringing someone to Jesus. In John chapter 1, he brings his brother Peter. He goes, he fetches Peter and brings him to Jesus. We found the Christ. In John chapter 6, it is Andrew who brings the little lad with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus to feed the multitudes. In John chapter 12, some Greeks come to Philip and they say, Philip, we want to see your master. Philip goes to Andrew and says, what do we do? we got some Gentiles who want to see the Lord. What does Andrew say? Let's take him to the Lord. Every time you see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus. A great example. I think Andrew was one of those type of people who, even though he didn't have all the answers, he knew where to get the answers. And he was content with that. I don't know everything, and I don't know what to do in every situation, but I do know the go-to guy. And I do know that you can't fail in just bringing somebody to Jesus. Let Jesus sort it out. I think that's the way Andrew was. He was not Peter out front, sort of running things and speaking for everybody. Peter, Andrew was sort of behind the scenes, content just to bring people to Jesus. I think he must have learned that from John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist, all he ever did was point to the Messiah. Point to the Messiah. Ask him questions about him, and he pointed to the Messiah. That's the way Andrew was. Just bring people to Jesus and let, let the chips fall where they may. So every time we see him in Scripture, he's bringing people to Jesus. Andrew lived with Peter. Mark chapter 1 says that Peter and Andrew shared a house together in the city of Caesarea because Andrew was a fisherman with his brother Peter. Caesarea was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was an excellent fishing location. And not only was the fishing good, the commerce was good because Caesarea was, uh, uh, sorry, not Caesarea, Capernaum. I said Caesarea. Capernaum. Capernaum was on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a great spot for fishing, and it was right where trade routes intersected. And so it was very easy to fish. It was very productive to fish. It was very productive also to sell the fish there. And Andrew and Peter were both fishermen. They owned a fisherman's, a fishery business together. It seems that they spent quite a lot of time with James and John, who also lived in Capernaum and also fished on the Sea of Galilee and also ran a fishing business. And we see them in the Gospels fishing together, all four of them, maybe acting as partners, maybe running a business together. Every indication seems to be that James and John, the two brothers, the sons of thunder, were very good friends with Peter and Andrew, two other brothers. And in all likelihood, they may have spent a lot of time together outside of religious circles, outside of the synagogue. They fished with one another, probably attended the same synagogue together. All of them had sort of religious or messianic hopes and expectations. All of them were devout Jews. And they were all good friends even before they met Jesus. So it seems quite natural that after Jesus called the twelve, that the four of them would sort of get together and form a very cohesive group amongst the twelve, sort of a a clique, as it were, amongst the disciples, as they were friends before they ever met Jesus. Andrew in Scripture is a very toned-down individual. He's not as as brash as Peter, not as bold as Peter, not as uh, sort of outgoing and upfront as Peter was. Andrew was the type of guy who sort of labored behind the scenes in the shadows. Um, Andrew seems to have grown up and lived in the shadow of his brother Peter. I would be curious to find out if Peter was older or younger than Andrew. I don't know that. Was Andrew the younger one or was he the older one who had to deal with sort of the 
the boisterous, mouthy younger brother Peter growing up. However it fleshed out, Andrew must have gotten used to his brother. And Andrew was not the same type of personality as his brother because if you are trying to get center stage and trying to be up front where everybody notices you and you got a brother who's constantly sort of horning his way in in front of you and drawing attention to himself, you do one of two things. You either learn to live in the shadows of your brother or you find some other place to live where you can have center stage. But Andrew never seems to have ever tried to take center stage. And Andrew had to know his brother, and Andrew also had to know, once I bring Peter into this mix, once I introduce Peter to Jesus, he is going to always overshadow me. Because that was the way that it always was. And that's the way it was in the New Testament. Peter is brash, he is bold, he is vocal, he is assertive, he's the natural leader, he's always out front, but you never see that with Andrew. You never once see Andrew trying to take center stage. We never see Andrew trying to speak for other people, trying to act for other people. We never see Andrew ever putting his foot in his mouth and saying something that he shouldn't say or doing something that he shouldn't do. In fact, MacArthur in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, writes this of Andrew. Whenever he speaks, which is rare in Scripture, he always says the right thing, not the wrong thing. Whenever he acts apart from the other disciples, he does what is right. Scripture never attaches any dishonor to Andrew's actions when it mentions him by name. Now, Andrew, when acting with the other 12 disciples, probably followed the crowd and did some of the same sometimes foolish or stupid or silly things or wrong things that they did. But whenever he acts on his own, Scripture always says that he did the right thing, and it always shows him saying the right thing. And he was kind of behind the scenes. Peter, Peter was more out front, in front of everybody, sort of asserting himself. In many ways, I think that most of us here can relate to Andrew more than we can relate to Peter. Andrew is the guy that's behind the scenes, not necessarily the one who is internationally or nationally known. Peter was well known. Even later on in church history, Peter, well known. Everybody associated Peter as the leader of the twelve, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, one of the leader of the apostles, the sort of the spokesman for the apostles, but Andrew, not so much. In fact, we never read anything of of Andrew after the day of Pentecost, but we do read a lot about Peter because Peter seemed to have taken the leadership role. The 11 times that Andrew is mentioned in the New Testament, the 11 of the 11 verses, six of them call him Peter's brother. Now, how would you always like to be referred to as Simon Peter's brother? Who are you? I'm Andrew. Andrew who? I'm Peter's brother. Oh, Peter's brother. Now I know who you are. And talk about living in somebody else's shadow, right? All the way through the New Testament, he's just Simon Peter's brother. Other than that, he's unknown. But the most notable thing about Andrew, that he was Peter's brother. We had a, a missions conference at the Bible school that I attended one year, and there was one of the guys that came who was a missions rep, who was representing a missions organization. He was teaching a chapel, and I noticed, I don't even know what his first name was, but his last name was Lutzer. Lutzer. And I thought, well, Erwin Lutzer, I know Erwin Lutzer. So we went to, Deidre and I went to the session, the seminar that he taught, and turns out he was Erwin Lutzer's brother. Now today, as today, I don't even know what the guy's first name was, but I do know that he mentioned that he was always known as Erwin Lutzer's brother. He sort of never had his own identity unless it was attached to his more famous brother who has the radio ministry, Erwin Lutzer. That's sort of the way Andrew was with Peter. All the times in the New Testament that you see the disciples arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom, Andrew's never at the center of that. Peter, James, John, the rest of them, yeah. But Andrew never seems to be the guy who wants to step out and argue over which one of them is the greatest. Now, I said in many ways we can relate to 
Andrew more than we can to Peter, simply because most of us labor, and this is true of most elders and most pastors of most churches, most of us labor in the shadows of greater men. Not every pastor is called to be a Spurgeon or a Wesley or a Whitfield or a Jonathan Edwards or a John MacArthur or a Martin Lloyd-Jones or an R.C. Sproul or a James Montgomery Boyce. Not every pastor is called to be that. There are a few great men that are called to that type of a ministry, but the rest of us just labor in the shadows with small churches and small locations and small callings with much smaller responsibilities. And I think most of us can just relate to Andrew. A lot of us spend our time laboring in the shadows of men and women who have gone before who are much greater and mightier and more well-known than we are. Now, when it comes to putting your foot in your mouth, I can relate to Peter more than I can to Andrew. But when it comes to laboring in the shadows, I think most of us can relate to Andrew more than we can to Peter. Another way in which Andrew is a good example for us is that unlike Peter, Andrew was not the guy to get up in front and preach to the multitudes and lead 3,000 people at a time to Christ. Peter did that. Scripture never records a single sermon that Andrew ever delivered. As far as we know, he never got up and preached in front of the multitude. But you know what we do see Andrew doing? bringing one person at a time to the Lord and saying, let me introduce you to the Savior. Now, all of us can do that, right? Not everybody can get up in front of multitudes and preach, lead 3,000 people to Christ, but all of us can grab one person at a time and say, let me introduce you to the Savior. I have found the Messiah. And in that way, Andrew is an example to us. Now, whatever happened to Andrew? After the day of Pentecost, we don't read anything about anything that he ever did. MacArthur, again, in his book on the 12 disciples, 12 ordinary men, writes this. Tradition says that he took the gospel north. Eusebius, the ancient church historian, says that Andrew went as far as Scythia. That's why Andrew is the patron saint of Russia, and he's also the patron saint of Scotland. He was, I said that for your sake, Drew. He was ultimately crucified in Achaia, which is in southern Greece near Athens. One account says that he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ, and that infuriated her husband. He demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus Christ, and she refused. So the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, those who crucified him lashed him to the cross instead of nailing him in order to prolong his sufferings. By most accounts, Andrew hung on the cross for two days, exhorting passers-by to turn to Christ for salvation before he died. Now back in our text, Andrew's not dead yet. So let's go back there. And verse John, or sorry, John chapter 1, verse 40, he went and he found Peter. And he was the first to find his brother Peter and say to him, we have found the Messiah. Now there's some confusion over what the first refers to in the verse. Greek manuscripts differ a little bit as to whether it's used as an adjective or an adverb, and I don't want to get into all the technicalities of it. But basically it boils down to one of three things. Either it means that Andrew, that the first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother, or it means the first person that Andrew found was his brother, Or it means that between Andrew and the other disciple, Andrew was the first one to find his brother. Implying that the other disciple also went to find his brother, who would be James, if it's John, and I think it was. But Andrew was the first one to find his brother. Now what is it? Is he he the first? Was Peter the first one he found? Was the first thing he did go to get Peter? Or was he the first one to find his brother? Could be all three of them. It could be that Andrew went and he found Peter, and of the two, he was the first one to find his brother, and the first thing he did was find Peter, and Peter was the first one he found. Andrew went immediately to Peter and said, we have found the Messiah. Now you notice how Andrew includes himself with a group of people? We. Who's the we? Who is he talking about we? He's including himself with a much larger group, and I think he's referring to John. We. That is, Peter knew who Andrew was with, this other disciple, verse 37 and verse 40, We have found the Messiah. 
Messiah translated means Christ. It simply meant anointed one. It was used in the Old Testament of kings. It was used in the Old Testament of priests. It was used in the Old Testament sometimes of the patriarchs, speaking of God's anointing. It came later on in the Old Testament period to be used of the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would show up with a a special anointing and who would be especially used by God. You see it in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, where Daniel speaks of Messiah the Prince, speaking of this Messiah, this anointed one who was going to come. And so when Andrew goes to Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah, Peter understands exactly what Andrew is saying. We have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. We have found the deliverer. We have found the savior. We have found the prophesied one. We have found Messiah the Prince. The time has come for him to show up. We have stumbled upon him. We have found him. You have to come and see this. And the implication is that not only did Peter know who Andrew was speaking of and know what Andrew was saying, But Peter also had some sort of a spiritual drawing to the Messiah. And it's the implication is that Peter was waiting for the same thing Andrew was waiting for. Andrew went back and told his brother, we found the Messiah. And the implication is Peter was waiting for that too. And so I think Peter and James and John and Andrew, all of them, had messianic expectations and hopes. All of them were waiting for the Messiah. At some point, John and Andrew went out into the wilderness to John the Baptist, heard him preach, met the Messiah, were convinced that they had found the Christ, and they rushed back to tell their brothers. And so Peter is a a devout Jew, and I think that Peter, owning a fishing business, fishing on the Sea of Galilee, attending the synagogue, worshiping the Old Testament God, the God of Israel, is understanding that the time has come for the Messiah to show up, and Andrew shows up and says, we found him. Because Peter was looking as well. So what does Peter do? Or what does Andrew do? He brought him to Jesus... And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated as Peter or the rock. Or rock. Peter means rock. Cephas means rock. His name was Simon. So Andrew took Peter, maybe physically, out to where John the Baptist was, where Jesus was, to introduce Jesus or Peter to Jesus. Now here's the first, I think, interesting thing to notice about this context. Do you know that notice that Peter doesn't say anything in the passage, in the story? Peter's the talkative disciple. Peter's the one who always speaks before his mind gets in gear and figures out what it is that he's going to say. Peter's the one who always is speaking on somebody else's behalf. But then when he meets Jesus, no words are recorded from Peter. Now that is odd to me because it seems out of character with Peter. And I I wonder, did Peter say something stupid that John didn't record? Or did Peter simply keep his mouth shut because he was in the presence of such majesty? I think it was the latter. I think Peter understood whose presence he was in. And what do you say? What do you say when you meet Jesus? I think the smart thing is nothing. Because you don't want to say anything that's going to get you in trouble. You don't want to say anything that is going to appear to anybody as stupid. And I think that's what Peter did. He is quiet. And Jesus is the one who did the talking. And Jesus, it says, looked at him. The word means to gaze intently. It means to to search with your gaze. There was something in Jesus' gaze, gaze that John saw, that Peter saw, where Jesus was looking intently at Peter, and he said to him, you're Simon. Now, I think that Jesus knew that before Andrew ever said anything to Jesus about who he was introducing him to. I think Jesus saw him coming, and like with Nathaniel later on in the passage, Jesus knows Peter, he sees Peter, He doesn't need to be introduced to Peter, and he simply says to him, you're Simon. 
Simon was a very common name in the New Testament era. In the Gospels alone, there are seven different people referred to as Simon. Jesus had a half-brother named Simon. Even among the twelve, there are two different disciples with the name Simon. There's Simon Peter, this one, and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot's father's name was Simon. It was a, it was a popular or a common name. And that was uh, Peter's name when Jesus met him. And then Jesus gave him a nickname. Luke, I think it's Luke 5 or 6. I think it's Luke 6. It says that Jesus also named him Peter or Cephas. And that name means rock. What's interesting in the New Testament is how Jesus uses Peter's, Simon's different names. Sometimes he is referred to as Simon. Sometimes he's referred to as Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon. Sometimes he's called Rock. Now, Rock was his nickname. That was what he was called among the disciples. That is what Jesus nicknamed him. The irony of it is that Rock is the exact opposite of what Simon was. He was no Rock. He was vacillating. He was unreliable. He was brash. He was sometimes decisive and other times indecisive. He certainly was no rock. As you watch Jesus use the different names in the Gospels of Simon, sometimes calling him Simon, sometimes calling him Peter, Jesus calls him Peter when he acts like a rock. Almost as if Jesus is reminding him, see, Peter, that's that's what I want you to be like. Um, You are Peter. After Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus called him Peter, rock. Good confession, rock. That's exactly right. But other times, Jesus called him Simon, almost as a mild rebuke, reminding Simon, look, you're acting like Simon and not like Peter. When Peter acted like a rock, he called him Peter. When Peter acted like his old self, he called him Simon. When Jesus was predicting Simon's greatest failure, he said, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. When he fell asleep in the garden while Jesus was off praying, he came back and he said, Simon, can you not pray with me one hour? And it was sort of a gentle rebuke. Look, you're Simon again. You're not, you're not the rock. I want you to be like the rock. Now Peter eventually came to be a rock. He wasn't in first, he wasn't in, in John chapter one, verse 42. He was still Simon. Peter had sort of, um, if you were looking for a, a natural leader and somebody who had natural leadership abilities, Peter would be your guy. Peter had leadership abilities like initiative. He was always the one who sort of grabbed the bull by the horns and went after it. You remember on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter grabbed his sword and in face of overwhelming military force, started swinging it wildly, thinking he was going to solve this problem. That was Peter. Grab the sword, take initiative, make a decision. He was a very decisive individual. Decisiveness is good, even if you make a wrong decision. Decisiveness is better than indecision all the time. Give me somebody who makes a decision, even if they make a wrong decision, it's better than no decision at all. Because indecision is always a decision to do the wrong thing. So Peter was very decisive. He always took the initiative. He was very inquisitive. We see him asking Jesus questions all the time. Peter seems to speak often for the rest of the disciples, sort of assuming the rest are on board with him. He sort of jumps out and speaks for the twelve as their spokesman sometimes saying foolish things. He has been called the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he oftentimes sort of crammed it in there and spoke before he thought, sometimes acting before he was thinking. He was a a brash individual and a very aggressive, assertive individual, an individual who always sort of pushes his way to the front. That was Peter. Peter was also very unreliable. He was the first one in, also the first one out. 
He'd always lead the way into something, and you would jump in following him, and the first thing you'd notice when you got into the mix was, where's Peter? Oh, he's already gone. He was out of here a long time ago. That was the type of Peter, that type of guy that Peter was. Leading the way in and quickly leading the way out again. Very unreliable, very unstable. Like what James says in James chapter 1, a double-minded man unstable in all of his ways. He would eventually become the rock that Jesus wanted him to become. Uh, Jesus taught him the qualities that he would eventually need to learn, like humility and submission and obedience and compassion and self-restraint. Listen, all of the qualities of a leader that I've just named for you, all those things that Peter had, those are all good qualities when they are under control of the Spirit of God. Those are all good qualities when they are honed by the Spirit of God. But when they are not, they destroy you. You are a leader, and you can be a leader if the Lord is able to take the things that are strengths for you and hone them and channel them for His purposes and for His glory. And that is what the Lord did with Peter. But those same character qualities, if not under the control of the Spirit of God, destroy people. They destroy men. They destroy their reputations. They destroy their lives. They destroy their families. They destroy their businesses. They destroy their spiritual lives and their walk with Christ, sometimes destroying their ministries. So those positive qualities that Peter had had to be sort of honed and sanctified and reined in, as it were, by the Spirit of God in order to make him a rock. And Peter did become that. In church history, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, leading a group of up to 5,000 at one time. He was the one who was out front and he preached and taught and he uh, avoided division in Acts chapter 6 by appointing deacons. Peter eventually went on missionary journeys out to Joppa and then Caesarea. He was the first one to lead, or he led Cornelius to Christ, the first one to really lead a prominent Gentile to the Lord. And then he came back and he defended that to the rest of the apostles. Now there was one in Peter's life, one small indiscretion in uh, Galatians chapter 2. It was a serious one where Peter had compromised and started eating meat uh, pork with Jews, or sorry, without with Gentiles, and not eating pork when the Jews came around. And Paul had to confront him, but Peter responded like a true man of God to Paul's correction, and he righted it, and he repented of it, and he straightened out, and then later on in Acts chapter 15, Peter defended Paul's ministry and defended a gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So Peter was a great, bold man of God, and eventually Peter would even face death with courage and conviction. Now, Peter teaches us two things. I suggested two sort of applications from Andrew. Number one, that uh, we can labor behind the scenes, and most of us do, and he's an example to us in that way, and also we can bring one person to Christ instead of necessarily thinking we have to do it with the multitudes. Peter is an example to us of two other things. First, how the Lord can take good, strong personality traits and hone them and brush off the rough edges to use them for his purposes and for his glory. It is an axiom of life that our strengths are also our greatest weaknesses. you realize that? Our strengths are also our greatest weaknesses. Because strengths and weaknesses are kind of on a spectrum. And the stronger you are toward one side, the weaker you are toward the other side. So people who have very strong personality traits or very strong leadership abilities also have gaping weaknesses at the other end of the spectrum. And Peter is an example of somebody whose strengths can be honed and used and sanctified by the Lord to make him a rock. Second, Peter is a good demonstration that those of us who are unreliable can be made reliable. Those of us who vacillate, those of us who are like Peter and we say 
something very strong and faithful at one point and then shove both feet in our mouth the next instant. Or we jump out in a leap of faith and we have all the confidence in the Lord and the next minute we're choking in unbelief. That's Peter. We can relate to Peter in those ways. The Lord, by the Spirit and His Word, has a way of taking people who are unreliable and vacillating, us who are of little faith, and turning us by His grace into rocks. Eventually, Peter became the rock in the New Testament church that the Lord wanted him to become. And eventually, Peter even testified to his belief in Christ through his death and his own martyrdom. Scripture doesn't record how Peter died, but it does record Jesus prophesying to Peter how and that he would be martyred for the faith. That's later on in John chapter 21, which we'll get to in just a couple weeks. Yeah, somebody scoffed. John MacArthur of Peter's martyrdom writes this, All the records of the early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. Eusebius cites the testimony of Clement, who says that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led away to death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name, saying, Remember the Lord. And when it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord had died, and thus he was nailed to the cross head downward. That was Peter. Vacillating, unreliable, fluctuating, lack of faith, putting his feet in his mouth, all of the leadership qualities that you expect. What did the Lord do? In 18 months' time, through His Word and by His Spirit, He chiseled off the rough edges and He sanctified Peter and He used Peter as a rock to testify to His glorious grace. So we learn that from Peter, and we also learn that God can do the same with us. He can take those of us who are vacillating, unreliable, flippant, going one direction, then another, saying stupid things, and turn us into rocks in His kingdom, all to the praise of His glorious grace. And that's exactly what God does with us, His saints, is it not? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for all that we can learn from these two men. We thank You that there are things in each of their lives which speak to us and model for us what it is that you do and intend to do through us. We thank you that we are, though we are not rocks and though we are, seem like just clay, that we can be fashioned in your hands into that which pleases and honors you. We thank you that that work of grace and that sanctifying influence and work is never done. We thank you that you continue it. We thank you that you do it by your power, by your spirit, through your word. And may you, O God, fashion our hearts and fashion our lives into stones that are sturdy and reliable and bear faithful witness and testimony to you. To the praise of your grace, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.